You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. I'm thankful that Laura has already woken all of you up. Uh, sorry about that, Laura. <laughs> uh, that was our fault on the, the tech crew there. But uh, it is it is absolutely a pleasure uh, to be with you all today. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. Today we are starting a new sermon series, a new series of teachings through the book of Acts. Now you might ask, why? Uh, why would we go through this book of all books right now? Why would we choose to journey through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts? Well, I think it's pretty appropriate for where we are as a church. There are a lot of good things happening at King's Church right now. There are a lot of new things happening at King's Church right now. If you've been around for some time, whether a month or, or five months, you've witnessed this. New growth, uh, new small groups started, new ministries initiated, uh, new leaders appointed. As many of you found out this week that we are appointing Bradley Clark as our first lay elder, and you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. We're really excited about how the, 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 the church is growing across the landscape of things happening here at King's Church. Now, why is that important? Well, when we look at the book of Acts, what we're seeing here is the genesis of the church. We're seeing the beginning of what we are now experiencing here at King's Church. From the very beginning, we're seeing the mission unfold in the early church. We're seeing the history of the church, and it's really our history as well. When a student uh, from, from the United States here studies American history, we're studying it, and we study things like the Revolutionary War. Why? Because we want to understand the conception of our history. We understand where we're from. We understand how we came to be. And we look at the book of Acts, and we see that it's not just a distant history. It is our history as a church. We're studying something much more significant because we're studying the beginning of the movement of the church. One historian, Michael Green, said in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, he said this quote, it's on the screen. Three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In three years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. And in those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seabed of all of this, the time when it took its decisive root, was in these first three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. Now think about that for a moment. In this book, the book of Acts, what is recorded in three decades changed the world. What is recorded with a handful of men and women meeting in an upper room that we're going to see today, it all began there. And the seedbed from that expanded into the known world. In fact, if you were to look at like a Google map image of what happened in the book of Acts, we'll have this on the screen for you. This is what happened. In those decades, we saw the gospel go to every major cosmopolitan and urban area in the Mediterranean world. And much like today in D.C., we see the gospel go forth in cities, cities just like the one we find ourselves in. So it's pretty appropriate that we would study this book, right? We live in a major urban area, and we're continuing this mission, the mission that God has given his church. 
Now, we're going to learn a lot from the book of Acts, I think, over the course of however many weeks it takes us to get through it. And I'm sure we'll take breaks because it's quite a long journey uh, through the book of Acts. But one thing I want to encourage you with as we begin, and that is how we should approach this book. You know, sometimes when we read books of the Bible, uh, we can get invested in it in different ways. Sometimes we can read it as scholars. We can admire the history of it. We can see the, the nuances and the details, the places and, and the structures that we read about. And it can really become something that we study with, with kind of a scholarly mindset. Other times we might just be an admirer of it, right? We might read the book of Acts and we see the courage that these apostles had and the miraculous things that we did. And it can, it can stir in our hearts to admire the work that they did. But I want to encourage us, church, as we journey through this book, to read it as participants. We're not just scholars reading this book for the history that it is. We're not just admirers reading what the apostles accomplished and how amazing it was. We're reading it as participants. The history of this book is not so distant from us. In fact, when you look at the end of the book, the author here, which we're going to learn about in just a moment, Luke, when he writes this book at the end in chapter 28, it doesn't really have much of an ending, does it? If you were to go to the end, you'd, feel, you'd see that's kind of abrupt. Uh, Paul is, is in prison in Rome, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and it just kind of ends. And it's almost as if Luke didn't want to write an ending to the book. It's almost as if we're continuing in this mission. That's precisely what we're doing today at King's Church. We say at King's Church that we are a new church. We're only three years old, but in some sense we can say we're not a new church. We're over 2,000 years old because we're continuing in the legacy of our forefathers and our foremothers in this book. And so today as we read this first chapter, we kind of dive into the introduction of the book of Acts. I want you to see that we are participants in the work of God. We're participating in the mission. We're participating in the legacy of what we see accomplished in the book of Acts. And so if you're to summarize Acts chapter 1 into one kind of big main idea, which is kind of hard. I appreciate that uh, a little stab there, Robert, about how I'm going to sum all this up in one sermon. Uh, but if we were to try to get one main idea of chapter 1, I think it'd be this. God's plan of redemption continues as Jesus ascends. It continues on. The message of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus, the things that we see in, in the gospels, they continue. There's not a stop, right? The, the, the ministry, the message, the mission, God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ to change the world, it continues in Acts chapter 1. And we're going to see three different ways it continues. And here's my outline. Number one, we're going to see that Luke's message continues. The author, the message that he's been writing from the beginning of Luke chapter 1, which we'll I'm share more about that in just a moment. We'll see Jesus' ministry continue. The ministry that Jesus has, has had here on earth continues. And then finally, we'll see the church's mission continue. The mission that we're still a part of today. So let's go ahead and dive into the text in Luke, excuse me, Acts chapter 1 with Luke's message continuing. It says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, from John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Luke is the author of this text. We get that from a few uh, context clues, and that really beginning the, the opening statement there. Now he's writing not his first book, but a second book to a guy named Theophilus. Now there's one other place where we see this uh, addressed, and that is the beginning of Luke's gospel. 
he writes in his first book to Theophilus. And here we see that same address in the very beginning of this text, that he's writing not his first account, but his second book to Theophilus. And he says in his former book, he wrote about the things that Jesus did and teach. And, and, and if you look back at the Luke, uh, excuse me, Luke's gospel, you'll see that Luke wrote of the stories of what Jesus did, his ministry. And then here we're going to see that he's going to expound upon the ministry of Jesus through the church. He's going to write the stories, the legacy of the early church in his second book. Now notice he addresses Theophilus as O Theophilus, which we don't know a ton about Theophilus, but what we do know is that he was probably someone sophisticated, someone cultured. You wouldn't address someone like this unless they were some kind of official title. Perhaps he was in a Roman official. Regardless of who Theophilus is, what we do know is that he's trying to uh, help Theophilus understand the Christian message. He's trying to help Theophilus understand why this matters. And, and Luke's kind of this investigative reporter, right? He, he investigates things well. He's been around the block. Uh, he's been with eyewitnesses, interviewed people. He's done the hard work of, of developing uh, his case for why he believes this message. And he's developed it through two books now. In fact, Luke has written more of the New Testament than anyone else. And he's writing with this sense of wanting Theophilus to understand the credibility of the Christian message. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, he gives some more context to this. He says, Inasmuch as I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that delivered up to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. Why does he want to write this account? We answers it in verse 4 of Luke chapter 1, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wants Theophilus to have certainty about the message that he is being taught. And here he continues with that same vein, that same kind of language. If you were to look back at Luke 24, which uh, Ben actually spoke about last week with the resurrection, you'll see that the end of Luke chapter 24 and the first five verses of Acts are very similar. He's continuing the same message. And then he says here, he says in verse 3, that Jesus Christ presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here's the point. He's trying to get Theophilus to understand that the message that he's continuing to proclaim is true. That the Christian message has credibility. It's true. It's truth for us today. It's not just an inspiring story. It's not just good stories. It's not just things that are practical for our living. It's truth. Now, you might say, well, of course, in the first century, it would have been easier for someone to have credibility when it comes to things like resurrection and miracles because they were kind of in a, they were kind of in a, a pre-scientific age, right? It was easier for them to kind of believe in the supernatural, right? We, we live in a scientific age. We don't, we don't really live in the realm of the supernatural anymore. So I understand how he's writing to this context and how they would be more willing and open to believe in something like the resurrection of Jesus. But notice that's not really true when you look at the text. In fact, if you were to go back to Matthew 28, which the teachings Matthew 28 is, is telling us, which we know as the Great Commission, if you've been around church, is actually happening during this 40-day period he's talking about here. And right before he gives this great commission to the church, and he says, go, make my name known, make disciples, teach people, baptize people in my name all over the world. Go make disciples of all nations. Before he does that, the text actually says that as the eleven were gathered in Galilee, on the mountain where, where Jesus had directed them to go, some saw him and they worshiped, but others saw him and they doubted. 
They saw Jesus resurrected, and they still doubted. He was there. They heard him, and they still couldn't believe what their eyes were seeing. And here in the text, in verse 3, it says that he has presented himself to them for 40 days by many proofs. Now, why do you have to give many proofs? It's because it's probably hard to believe, right? Jesus is constantly giving proof to the credibility of who he is. And he's teaching them the truth. And guess what? It was hard for them to believe, just as it's hard for us to believe. It was hard for them to reconcile how a dead man could come back to life. (laughs) Just like it's hard for our minds to understand the concept of resurrection. But Jesus is real. The credibility of the message is real. It didn't matter how many times he ate fish with them. It didn't matter how many times he said, hey, touch me. Look, I'm not a phantom. I'm flesh and bones. He had to reprove to them that he was real, that his resurrection was true. Here's the point. The point is is that Christianity is an inspiring message. It is practical for living. It is fulfilling. It is good. But all those things are true because of its truth. We don't look at Christianity and we first think, oh, well, this is an inspiring message. It's a great thing for us. It gives us some practical lessons for how we should live our lives. We believe it because it's true. We believe it just like the early church believed it because the, the evidence was overwhelming. Like against all their biases, against all their, their thoughts and their claims, the evidence was so overwhelming that they had to believe it to be true. It was proved time and time again of its truthfulness. And today we can have confidence and assurance that the same message is true for us. That the same message that Jesus proclaimed, that Luke records here, continues. It's true. It's right. It's relevant. It's practical and it's fulfilling. Now, secondly, we see that Jesus' ministry continues through his ascension. Let's look at verse 6. So after he has had like this kind of 40-day mini-conference, <laughs> it's not really a mini-conference, it's, a, it's an awesome conference, to have 40 days to hear about the kingdom of God with Jesus, he says to them, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, or to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know time and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as he said these things, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood there by them with white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this passage speaks of a very climactic moment in Jesus' life. That is the ascension. Oftentimes in Christianity, uh, we like to talk about the crucifixion, right? Even if you're new to the faith, you probably have heard about the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you've ever attended an Easter service, you've probably heard about the resurrection of Jesus. But oftentimes, we don't talk as much about the ascension of Jesus. And that's why we like to recite creeds. Uh, Because every week you recite that, you are proclaiming the ascension of Jesus, that he has ascended and he is at the right hand of the Father. But notice the significance of this for a second. Right in the middle of this passage, as we're we're getting this climactic moment of Jesus' ascension, the disciples come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Now, I know you've been taught in elementary school that there are no dumb questions, but this is a dumb question, okay? (laughs) 
As one scholar actually put it, there are more errors in this one question than there are words, <laughs> right? Uh, they, they asked a pretty dumb question here. After hearing about the kingdom of God for 40 days, guys, they had heard Jesus speak about the kingdom for 40 days. They come to him with this question and say, hey, Jesus, when are you going to uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> like they totally missed it, right? This whole time he's been speaking about the kingdom of God, and they still have the same mindset that we talked about a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday when he was entering into Jerusalem on his last week, and the people were proclaiming Hosanna. They believed he was going to be this earthly king that was going to come and reign on the seat of David. And here they think the same thing again. That they th- when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What was the problem with this question? Well, the problem was it was too small. Their thinking was too small. They were thinking about one nation. They were thinking about an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, where Jesus would give power and autonomy and military strength to a Jewish nation apart from the Roman Empire. He totally missed it. Their vision was too small for what the kingdom of God really was. And Jesus answers them, and he actually answers with pointing to himself. First, he says, hey, guys, it's not your business, <laughs> right? It's the first thing he says, like, hey, you think you can predict when this is going to happen. It's really none of your business. And somehow we still believe we can predict when Jesus is coming back, right? I don't know if you've seen those people with T-shirts and hats, and they stand on the street corners with their signs. Okay, probably not credibility based off the text here, but uh, you can determine that for yourself. So uh, people are still trying to predict when the kingdom of God will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he comes back. And, and here he's telling them, hey, guys, it's none of your business. First of all, number two, you're missing it because I'm actually going to come and and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the kingdom of God is going to be something you never experienced before. It's going to be something you never expected. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's going to be so much bigger than what you are thinking right now. And then he ascends and they're left gazing as Jesus ascends into heaven. Now think about that for a moment. He ascends, and I don't know how he actually ascended in the text. It doesn't really give us a ton of details. I don't know if it was like an astronaut, like he just took off in a rocket ship like really fast, or if it was like he levitated up slowly, or he just like beamed up. I'm not really sure how he did it, but the, the fact is that he, he is, in my imagination, I just like wonder what, how it actually happened. But he ascends into heaven, and this cloud comes down and covers. And every time you see a cloud like this in the Bible, it's representing God's glory. The glory cloud comes down. I mean, look at the Mount Transfiguration, the Gospels, the cloud comes down, the presence of God is among them on the top of the mountain. In the Old Testament, the same thing happens. Clouds come down, and it represents the glory of God. And here we see this glory, climactic moment where Jesus ascends, and they're left just gazing up in the sky, dumbfounded at what just happened. Could you blame them? I mean, they've never seen Star Wars before, right? <laughs> they never had something like this before. They've never seen an airplane in the sky. They're just thinking, wow, this is amazing. Bewildered, amazed gazing up into the sky and these two men in white robes come were they angels were they not there's debate on that regardless there's some kind of uh, angelic being right they're, they're coming and they're they're in these dazzling white clothes and they bring these guys back to reality <laughs> they snap out of it just as he went up he will come back down he will come just as he left in this climactic glorious moment and when he comes the kingdom of god will be complete, it will be fulfilled, but until that moment, he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be his witnesses. Now, I don't want us just to skip over the ascension of Jesus, because sometimes we get to this place and we think, okay, this must be the stop of Jesus' ministry, right? Like he taught them for 40 days, he taught, he was was doing his earthly ministry, and then he ascends. Does the ministry of Jesus just stop? No, it continues. And in fact, there's two things that I want to point out through the ascension that Jesus ministers to us on a daily basis, and here they are. Number one, Through his ascension, we have relational intimacy. 
here's what I mean by that. If you have a physical Bible, because I know most of you probably are using your phones, but if you have a physical Bible, you can actually flip back one page in your Bible and you'll be in John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, as John is recounting the, the resurrection narrative, Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene is one of the first eyewitnesses of, of Jesus. She goes to the tomb, she runs to the tomb, and she's weeping. She's grieving because her friend Jesus is gone. And then Jesus appears to her. And notice what she does in John. She runs to him and she grabs a hold of him, the text says. Why does she grab a hold of Jesus? Because she doesn't want to lose him again. She is afraid of losing him. And Jesus tells her, hey, I'm, I'm going to ascend. Right? You don't have to grip onto me so tightly. I'm about to ascend. And it's hard, perhaps, in that moment for Mary to understand this. But what Jesus is actually saying is, hey, if I ascend, you're never going to have to let me go. Because if I stay here like this, there's going to be moments, Mary, where you're going to have to go eat. You're going to have to let my hand go. There's going to be moments where you're going to have to go to sleep. And you're going to have to let my hand go. There's going to be moments when I'm not going to be able to be right here, right next to you. But if I ascend, you will never be away from my presence. You will have relationship with me. And that's the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus ascends, he sends the Spirit with us. Realize how comforting that should be to us today? That because Jesus ascended into heaven, we can have relationship with him. Presence, ultimate presence, ultimate fellowship with our God. St. Augustine, who is this incredible, brilliant philosopher, this brilliant theologian, once said in one of his prayers, you ascended before our eyes, Jesus, and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. How beautiful is that? He ascends, and through his ascension, we know his presence like never before. We have the confidence today to know that even if we find ourselves in the darkest dungeon of this world, Jesus is with us. His presence is there. That's the ministry he continues to have through his ascension. We also see that through his ascension, we have an advocate in Jesus. Now, when we think of our governmental structures here, we think of separation of powers, right? We have our Supreme Court, we have Congress, we have the White House. But if you, if you see the imagery here that not only do we recite in creeds, but when we think about the ascension of Jesus, he ascends to a throne, right? And when you think about a throne, you don't see the separation of powers anymore. When you think about a throne, when someone would go to the throne of a king or queen, they're going not only to the place of power, but to the place of justice. So you only went to the, the throne when it was a, a need for a, a military strike or, or something of power, but you also went when there was a concern, when you wanted your concerns to be heard, because justice was declared from the throne. It was both the throne room and the courtroom all in one. And the Bible says this is how the ministry of Jesus is. In Hebrews chapter 7. It says, when Jesus Christ sacrificed for sins once for all by offering himself, he therefore is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, for he ever lives to intercede for them. The Bible says when Jesus Christ died and then he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he ascends to go to the right hand of the Father. He is our intercessor. Now, if you don't know what that term means, that literally means that he is intervening on your behalf. He is praying for you. He is completely for you. And 1 John gives us an even more clear picture of this. In 1 John, it says that he is our advocate, which for a lot of you in the room, you'll understand this because this is your occupation, like probably 40% of you. Uh, but he is our lawyer, right? 
He stands for us. He represents us in the courtroom of God's divine justice. He is the one who presents the verdict for us on our behalf. Now, that's important because we live in a world of verdicts, whether you realize it or not. You don't have to go to a courtroom to live in a world of verdicts. The reason why most of us in this room, if we're to be honest, spend time buying the clothes we, we buy, spend time in front of a mirror the way we do every week, is because we know people are going to pass verdicts on the way in which we look, right? And we do the same to others. We walk down the streets and we go, ooh, look at that. Oh, wow. Eh, you know, <laughs> whatever it may be. We, we are passing verdicts. That's probably how people look at me when I dress. Uh, we are passing verdicts on people, right? Condemning them or justifying them just by the way in which they look. But it's not just our looks. We do this in all aspects of life. We're passing verdicts on whether or not we're good friends, good fathers, good husbands, good daughters, good mothers, whether we're successful in our work, whether we're powerful enough or rich enough. We're passing verdicts constantly. We live in this world of needing approval from others, that we just want someone to pass a verdict in our lives that says, you're good, you're successful. But deep down, the Bible even tells us that if, even if we don't profess faith in Jesus, even if we don't know who God is, deep down we know there's a God and we know there's a standard of justice that we should be living up to and we're striving to, to live up to that standard as much as we can. But oftentimes, let's be honest, we know we never live up to it. But deep down, we try, we try, we try. We just want someone to say that you're good enough. You passed that verdict, but we know we fail. We know we'll never live up to it. We're almost imposters in the way in which we live this life, right? But then in God's courtroom, the courtroom that really matters, we have a lawyer who stands and represents us right now. That's the ministry of Jesus as he continues in his, through his ascension. The ministry of Jesus is that he stands in your place so that you're not condemned, but you're justified. If you go to a courtroom and you have a lawyer who looks eloquent, guess what? No matter what a mess you are, you're going to look eloquent because that lawyer is representing you. If you go to a courtroom and, and a lawyer uh, has, has a good strategy, even if you're clueless, Guess what? You're going to look like you have a strategy, right? Because your lawyer has a good strategy. If you are just absolutely a mess when you go into a courtroom, but your lawyer is as poised as can be, you're going to look poised because he represents you. Jesus goes and he represents us from the Father, and he's just not like someone who's pleading, like, hey, let him off the hook this time, Father, right? He's not just going and saying, hey, I just, I, I, need, I need you to just give him one more pass. Give Wesley one more pass, right? He's not like those court-appointed lawyers in Law and Order SVU who have like a thousand cases and they never know what's going on. They're just like, please just let my client off the hook, right? Uh, that's not who he is. He has a case. And Hebrews 7 is that case that Jesus Christ died once and for all, offering himself up. And he is able to save because he offers himself up. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And he ever lives interceding on our behalf. So when he goes to the Father in the courtroom through his intercession now, through his ascension and now intercessing on our behalf, when he goes to the Father, he says, Wesley has messed up again, but I'm not here to beg for mercy. I'm here because I have paid the debt for him. My blood, my body, I have paid his debt. It's not mercy I'm, I'm wanting from you, Father. It's justice. He is justified because of what I've done. That's how Jesus represents you right now. And every day he offers forgiveness to us. He offers the chance of repentance. And when we repent, the Bible reminds us that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is our ascended Lord, and he has not stopped ministering to his people, but he ministers every day through his presence through his relationship, and through his advocacy of us.
Now, next we see the church's mission. We'll just kind of summarize a lot of the end here. In verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Look, back, look down at verse 12. He then says, They returned to Jerusalem, to a mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. It's just a great lesson, by the way, to learn the other disciples' names, because sometimes we only talk about like three or four of them. Uh, but it's actually good that there were others uh, that did a lot of great things for the Lord, right? All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, which a side note, is just something so incredible here that he mentions his brothers because his brothers doubted him. His brothers doubted him in his earthly ministry. And it's so cool to see family restored, that they believe that Jesus now is the Son of God, and they are there with the apostles, devoting themselves to prayer in this upper room. And in those days, it says in verse 15, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, which is about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Let's stop right there for a moment. So what's happening here is Jesus has given his apostles their marching orders. He says, guys, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses. Those are the orders he gives. And then he, he reminds them of this mission. He ascends into heaven, and then they go into this upper room. And most people believe that this upper room was the same upper room that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper which if you remember, we recalled a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, possibly this John Mark's mother's house that they're meeting at as early church. And they also met when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, that last meal he had with his disciples. And they're in this upper room. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're uniting themselves together. They're in a room with an audience much like the size of this room today. And they're praying. They're united. They're waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And this just wasn't like a 30-minute, like, you know, prayer session, right? We go to like prayer meetings, we think, okay, 30 minutes is a long time to pray. It's like 10 days. <laughs> like they're praying for a long time. They're in there waiting for the promise of the Spirit, waiting for God to pour out his Spirit like he promised. And then Peter gets up and he says something uh, quite remarkable here. He reminds them that, hey, there were once 12 of us. Now there's 11 because Judas has betrayed Jesus and we need to, uh, we need to replace him. We need to uh, make the 12 again, right? Bring back the 12 apostles as God instituted. And, and there's a lot of uh, symbolism with this. If you think about the 12 tribes of Israel and how Jesus is restoring this new people, this Israel, and he's having the apostles kind of lead the charge on that. And then as we continue in the text, it says that they kind of give an description of what an apostle is, right? He describes uh, what are the qualifications of an apostle. There's someone who had kind of been with this band of disciples from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they're also someone who's witnessed an eyewitness of the resurrection, They've been with him for these 40 days. They've heard about the kingdom of God. They've been with him from the beginning. And they bring these two men forward, both great candidates. And they choose Matthias to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. Now, we also believe because of these qualifications that the, the office of apostle, as we see it here, is no longer needed. Right? These apostles were, were called at a specific time to lay the foundation of the church to ensure the New Testament writings as we have them today, and they're laying the foundation of the church, and the church is now built upon their leadership. And so it's important that this leadership structure is in place, and so they have this 12th apostle who comes along in Matthias. Now, let's just break this down for a moment, because I think all this falls under the caveat of the church's mission. 
The first thing we see in this mission is that it's all about Jesus. What does he call them to do? He calls them to be witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness draws attention to something. And he's calling them to be witnesses of his life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's all about him. That's why King's Church, our our vision statement begins with that. We are here to make Jesus known. Our witness is to witness to the resurrected Son of God. He is what our mission is all about. They're not there to speculate when he comes back. They're not to, to, to gaze into the clouds anymore. They're there to get on mission. There's work to do. They're to be his witnesses, and they're going to be empowered by the Spirit to do this work. It's not just that they've received good teaching. It's not just that they've been with Jesus for three years in these 40 days, but they're going to receive power to do this work. And what does the power of the Spirit do? The power of the Spirit magnifies the sun. You might think that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is like a, a floodlight. It's like a spotlight to elevate Jesus, to lift him up, to magnify him. You know, my favorite thing to do, one of my favorite things to do in the city is to go see the monuments at night, right? They're so beautiful at night. They're so much better at night, in my opinion, right? And I love the Washington Monument. The spotlight's on it. Just magnify it. It elevates it. It makes it look so beautiful. And that's what the Spirit does in our lives. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. And so they're going to be filled with the Spirit to be witnesses because the mission is all about Him, making His name known, portraying His beauty, His glory to the world around us. But then notice, too, the mission overcomes barriers. He says, hey, this is where you're going to be my witnesses. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, oftentimes we look at this and we think that's like a good roadmap for how the book of Acts goes. And we'll see this, actually. Uh, the, the disciples will kind of follow this roadmap. It's like a table of contents almost to the rest of the book. They'll start in Jerusalem and they'll find themselves in Judea, Samaria, and then eventually to what we would categorize the end of the earth, the rest of the really known Mediterranean world. But notice it's not, just, uh, it's not just geographical areas that he's talking about here. He's talking about people, right? He's talking about cultural distinctions within these areas. It's not just that they're going to go to places, but they're going to be witnessing and ministering to different people, different cultural contexts, different racial uh, uh, ethnic groups. There's going to be different contexts in which they'll be ministering to. And, and they're going to start in Jerusalem, which is the center of their known world, which is their people, right? They're going to go to Judea, which is a little less urban, and they're going to go to Samaria, which is literally their enemies, right? God's calling them to minister to their enemies, and then they're going to go to the end of the earth, which they don't even know what that concept means at this point, right? They don't even know what that looks like. What we're going to see is the gospel is going to spread to every major urban area in the known Mediterranean world. Now, here's why that's important for us. It's important for us to know here in D.C. where we see division in so many different lines that are drawn, whether it's political ideology, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's the literally lines drawn in the city that divided in quadrants. We know that the gospel can break down those barriers. That the mission of the church is to take the gospel to all people in all places, meaning that there is nothing that divides the church. Right? We can cross all lines of difference with the gospel message. We can cross political lines of difference. We can cross racial lines of difference. We can cross socioeconomic lines of difference with the gospel message. It breaks down barriers. It's encouraging for us today that we can get rid of our prejudices and our biases and we can take the gospel to places that perhaps we would never go before. Maybe a good place to start is uh, being a part of this church in our good neighbor ministry, which we're trying to serve uh, the city, around the city in different capacities. 
Perhaps it's a good starting point for us to think about how can we can serve different people in different contexts in our city. And then finally, we see that the mission, the mission the church has been given is in God's hands. It's in God's hands. You see at the end of chapter one here, it, sometimes it is kind of baffling. Like why, why does he include all these details about Judas and like this field of blood and like it's really gory. And then, then he, he goes and talks about how they went to this process of picking Matthias by, by casting lots, which were like, what, what does that mean? It's like kind of like drawing straws. It's kind of the best way we can put it, but it's not, it's not something bad necessarily. It was something that they did in the Old Testament. And up until this point, it was a way in which they, they utilized with in, 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 uh, in conjunction with the sovereign will of God. Uh, to make decisions, and, and they're doing all this stuff. We're thinking, why is he giving all these details? Like, why is all this in there? You know, it just seems kind of like weird. You know, you have this ascension of Jesus, which is this climactic moment, and the next week, as Ben will, will come up here, he'll talk in chapter two about the, the, the descending of the Spirit, which is this climactic moment at Pentecost, and then why is this in the middle, right? Well, I think it is to show that, that God's hand is upon his mission. It's to show that even through things like betrayal, <laughs> of Judas himself, did not stop the mission of God. It's to remind us that sometimes we can see God's purposes as invincible when things are going well, but oftentimes it's hard to see that God's purposes and his plan are invincible, that they're unconquerable when things are going poorly. When there's lying, when there's betrayal, when there's mistrust, when there's death. In those moments, it's harder for us to believe that God's purposes are truly invincible, that they're unconquerable, that they're going to continue on. And Luke's pointing out here in detail that Judas betrayed Jesus and it did not stop the mission. In fact, the evil one himself, if you go back to the cross, Satan himself wanted to see the cross as the method to destroy Jesus and all it did was bring light to victory through the resurrection. He continues on. The purposes of God are, are unconquerable. They're invincible. No matter what we face in life, the, the, the bad days, the hard days, the hard times as a church and as a society, his mission continues through his church. That's the promise he gives in Matthew that the gates of hell itself will not overcome the church. And we're going to see this play out in the book of Acts. We're going to see a lot of people who want to try to destroy the mission of the church. We're going to see a lot of people who are going to want to try to put down what the apostles are doing. And every time, we're going to see the text say, that the word of God increased, that the church grew in number, that it continued to multiply because nothing can stop the invincible and unconquerable purposes of God through his church. That's the mission we're on. Now he continues and, and he, they select Matthias and they're here now waiting in this moment and they're trusting the Lord. Even as they're doing this process, they say this in verse 24, we'll close here. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from the, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Casting lots for them, the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. To hear from the very beginning of the book of Acts to the very end, they're trusting the Lord because it's in his hands. And we too today can trust the Lord. So as we go into our time of communion, I just want to remind us that we have confidence in this message that Luke is proclaiming. It's true. It's relevant. It's fulfilling. It actually happened. We can have the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ right now, as we go to the, the time of communion, right now he is interceding for you. And today we can have courage to continue in the mission that was started here in Acts chapter 1. The mission that we as King's Church are still on today. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.